Well, let's get started with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll move forward. Father, most, most gracious Lord, you are kind in every way. Father, we just are thankful for this, this morning that you have allowed us to come out and hear and teach and, and learn of your word this morning, Father. Lord, we pray that this morning that, that nothing comes out that is not glorified, that does not glorify you, Father, and that all things, if there is anything that is, Lord, be snatched from our minds and our hearts, Lord, and that only the pure word be delivered. Father, we're so thankful for this day and those that have come out. Lord, we pray that you keep us humble in our thoughts and in our deeds this day. Brothers in Christ, let me pray. Amen. Well, years ago, I used to be a bread man. And that's a guy, you know, had the bread trucks, you know, they go out and they, we're talking years ago. At my age, that's lots of years ago. Uh, we had, uh, Doris and I only had one child at the time. I think she was expecting with another. I worked for a company called Rainbow Bread, which I think out here you guys had bunny bread, if anybody remembers that. Well, as a bread man, you deliver bread to stores, convenience stores, restaurants, everything. Well, I had uh, built this route up to 45 stops a day and covered 161 miles round trip. Um, that's a lot of places. The second largest route in Oklahoma. This is back in western Oklahoma. I got up at 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, worked as hard as I could until 5 or 6 that evening, sometimes 7. Uh, basically had a dead run every day. In order, if you think about it, 161 miles, the bread man has to put the bread up, has to take the old bread off. So you've got all that to do. You've got, you've got to do that 45 times in a day. Um, so I was physically pretty tired. As a matter of fact, I was so tired I could stand up in a, in a conversation with people and I could fall asleep with my eyes open. And people would, and you know, maybe 10 or 15 seconds later I'd, I'd wake up, missed half the conversation, but you know, you learn to kind of get into that. So, uh, so I, you know, I thought, you know, life's good. Was making pretty good money, second largest route, you're paid on a commission. Uh, so making some pretty good dough. So in I come one evening, and I, yeah, I know, <laughs> you got it, I can't believe it. So anyway, I come in one evening, and I'm bebopping in, exhausted, and my beautiful wife, Doris, who everybody here knows pretty much, meets me at the door, she grabs me by the shirt, and she gets right up in my face, and she starts shaking me, and she says, we have a problem. I'm oblivious, but what ensues is a discussion. There was a conflict. We had a conflict right then. There was a discussion. So everything we're going to be discussing today actually has kind of been led up to by the previous sessions that, uh, that have come before. Look at session one, our bodies are not our own. They're not delivery vessels for selfish desires. To quote John, if a husband and wife live according to the, to the words, therefore glorify God in your body, how full of grace, peace, and love will their home be? Session two, Adam could not reflect Christ and the church alone. He needed a helper. 
someone who could help him showcase and enjoy the mystery of Christ in the church. Session three, if you remember, whomever the Lord has given us as a spouse during our time on earth has come to you by the grace of God. Another great quote by John. Session four, the power of God and the beauty of his grace are clearly and wonderfully seen when marriages are restored and made whole. Session five, marriage exists first and foremost to help you and everyone else behold and proclaim the mystery of Christ in the church. Session six, whenever a wife finds herself fighting to maintain a joyful, submitted posture toward her husband, God gives her this image to behold and remember Christ in his church. Session seven, who we are, ambassadors for Christ. And session eight, which was a good one to lead up to this one, it also dealt with love and unity and ended with the truth that marriage is a gift of God to help, help display the glory of God, especially the glory of Christ in the church. Is there a theme there? Does anybody see a theme there? Kind of hit on a bunch of those lessons there? Ah, bingo. Christ in the church. Seems to be a pretty good theme running through there. So we're going to kind of continue that theme. We've kind of gone from a position of, of, uh, of um, where the first eight sessions were pretty much uh, really theological, hard-hitting that way. And this, hopefully, Lord willing, will be theological also. But we're kind of moving into some sessions here that are going to be a, a little bit more on the practical side. So a little bit more kind of like the epistles are set up, you know, where we have the first three chapters of Ephesians dealing with the more... Uh, um, theological part in the last three chapters and we're dealing with the more uh, practical part. And so we're kind of entering into that. So our communication is to serve that aim. It says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God in order that everything God may be, in everything God may be glorified, 1 Peter 4.11. So I thought years ago as a bread man, life's good. Ain't no stinking communication problem. We're just rocking right along here. In order, so, but honestly, it's probably not a communication problem. So, what is the trouble? What is the problem? Well, let's take a few moments to consider a few of the biggest fights that you've experienced. Maybe in marriage. Uh, maybe you witnessed it as a child or as a young person. You know, perhaps there was some screaming and shouting, or maybe there was a simmering, quiet, cold rage. Maybe there was a meltdown in 10 minutes, or maybe it burned slowly over five days, 10 days. Now, as you consider these fights, think about the reason for them. What was the fighting about? For many of us, it was, was, it was, for many of us, it was fighting about the glory of God. We were concerned about his holy name, so committed to his kingdom, so jealous for his honor, and so eager to serve his pleasure that we, we went to war with our spouse over it? That's got to be the reason why, right? It was all about the glory of God, right? We were going knocking heads because of the glory of God. Uh, probably not. Probably not. Well, so let's look at some scripture that hopefully will kind of bring us to a point where we can kind of understand ourselves in this idea of conflict and maybe help us through it a little bit. If you've got your Bibles with you and you'd like to turn to James 4, that's where we're, where we're going to be looking, where we'll take kind of that text and kind of hopefully break it down a little bit so that we might understand this idea of conflict. 
And keep in mind that we're talking conflict in the marriage, but conflict is conflict, you know. So you can apply this in other areas of your life, of your life also. John, uh, James 4, let's look, start with verse 1 and go through verse 8. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or, do you suppose it is no, that is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come near to God, and he will draw, to near you, draw near to you. Wash your hands, O sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So praise God for his clarity when it comes to di diagnosing our trouble in relationships. In James 4, he openly declares the cause and cost of quarrels in marriage, in verses 1 through 6, as well as help and hope in dealing with the trouble. So first, the cause and cost of our sinful conflicts. The cause of our sinful communication is given in verse 1. Our passion is at war with us. There are two key principles and one thought I'd like to, uh, to see in this passage. First off, our external wars always animate our internal wars. Animate. I love big words. It's great, isn't it? You know. Uh, it means simply to uh, bring to life, you know, when you animate cartoons and stuff like that. But I like big words that make me sound important, you know. Just, uh... So external wars animate or bring to life our internal loves and our fears, our loyalties, our allegiances. They put our internal worship into a rational, visible form. Our communications come from desire problems. So what kind of problems can you think of? What kind of desire problems can you think of? I'll give you, a, I'll start you off on one here. Uh, our dream of marriage is what it, you know, what it should be. For what our dream, of, you know, what our dream of marriage, what should it be? My, uh, you know, my desire is that marriage should be something. What other desires can you think of? Uh, Desire problems, can you think of? Can anybody think of anything? What do you desire out of your marriage? Or if you're not married, what would you desire out of your marriage? Personally. Anybody? What? Sex? Respect. 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 Got that one wrong. <laughs> that one actually works. Okay, respect. So respect. So you would 
um, you would desire respect from your, from your spouse. Okay, all right, that's pretty good. Any other kind of desires that you might think of? Um, Companionship, okay. You desire companionship from your spouse. That's good. Understanding. Understanding. These are really good. What about uh, what about we want stuff a certain way? Okay. Uh, what about uh, maybe we want our house to be in a certain order? All right kind of from the lady's point of view, but maybe from a man's, you know, the wife or prospective wife, she wants, she wants her house to be a certain way. Um, what about uh, maybe your spouse, um, either the husband or the wife, wants to have the kid, the kids treated or, you know, in a certain way. You know, each has their own idea. Um, what about how we handle money? We want our spouse to hear what we want. Uh, what about to do things our way? Which is kind of takes me back to the bread ban. You know, I had a desire to do things my way. I was going to provide for my family my way, regardless of what, you know, was at stake with the family unit itself. You know, that desire there was my desire to, to do something. Uh, my desire to... Uh, to entertain our way, to speak the way we want, to hear what we want, you know. Uh, and all of this, we all these different ways we, in these different ways, we kind of assume, uh, these are God's ways. And we definitely don't want them to do what we fear or attack what we cherish or threaten what we do not think we can live without. For instance, Dr. Pepper, you know. Uh, I'm talking about my wife there. <laughs> the longings and anxieties that govern our souls, that's what we fight about, according to verse 2. For you just married or newly married, this really kicks in between, between years 3 and 7. Once the honeymoon's over and there's realization that you're living with someone else, it, things change. So verse 2 says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You want something, perhaps even a good thing, but without stumbling, without submitting it to the will and purposes of God, so that when your spouse fails to deliver, you become angry, resentful, cold, or any other form of murder in the heart. Maybe we crave approval or respect or romance or physical comfort or sex or financial security, and when our spouse fails to cooperate, we fight and quarrel. Our fights and quarrels show that what we truly value. And, and a lot of times in marriage, it's this 50-50 thing, which I never could quite understand, the marriage be 50-50. If you're going to give 50% to a marriage and expect 50% in return, so who decides which 50 is what? And how do you keep track? What if I do something that's on your 50%? Do I get a discount on something else? You know, so that 50-50 thing, you know, uh, our expectations of the other person are not being met if we move into that 50-50, because we can't. There's no way. You know, we can't know what that 50-50 is. So if we really want to see what the idols are that we worship, the selfish desires ruling us, 
We simply pay attention to those moments when we go to war with our spouse. The Lord knows how to use our spouses and to expose our desires. Your spouse is not perfect, but you are perfect for your spouse. And we might get quite sophisticated about how we deal with our spouse during our quarrel times. Because we're Christians after all, hey. So we can't just go, typically, go and cuss our spouse out. So we get creative. We stop looking them in the eyes, huff around the house, we pout, give the cold shoulder, we withhold affection, we withhold words of kindness, we withhold encouragement, and we, we ask others, and I love this, we ask others to pray for our wife. Oh, oh, pray for my wife. We ask others to pray for our spouse, maybe our husband. Oh, please pray for him. So in areas that they're falling short, and we fool everyone, including our, our spouses, but we will not fool God, which brings us to the second principle of the passage. Our horizontal wars always animate, love that word again, vertical wars, and these are usually rooted and grounded in selfishness. Here's what's scary. We can be so controlled by our selfish desires that they even corrupt our prayers and way of relating to God. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, we do not receive because we do not pray. But even when we pray, we do not receive because our motivation is carnal, not godly. Since our mission in life is, to borrow from John, my kingdom come and my will be done, I seek from the hands of God things that will benefit my kingdom, not his. Notice that James calls it adultery, spiritual adultery. Horizontal skirmishes in our relationships bring to light our unfaithfulness to God. When the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, God made sure to remind him that the grumbling was really about and really towards him. When David committed spiritual adultery with Bathsheba and conspired to murder Uriah, the Lord interpreted his attacks upon his name. If you look at Psalms 51, you can see where David bears this out. Now, here's what, now, here's what should be the most convicting point of, from my point of view, the most convicting thing of all. Sinful words and sinful listening and sinful relating do, do not lead so much to trouble with God, but they reflect how deeply opposed to God we already are. Now here's that again. Sinful words and sinful listening and sinful relating do not so much lead to trouble with God. They, re they reflect how deeply opposed to God we really are. This is where communications problems in marriage can act like a check engine light on the car or uh, a smoke detector in your, in your home. Fighting with your spouse alerts you that something has already gone wrong. So, it begs the question, can I change my spouse to be more like what I want? And I don't know, in the marriage life, there's, there's some tug at that, I think kind of from all of us. If, you know, if you've been, maybe especially in the first years when, you know, that first three to seven years, where we really, you know, you wake up in the morning and you look at the person next to you over in the bed and you go, who is this person? Because the honeymoon's over. 
Nowadays, it may be even quicker than that. But trust me, you know, I, I, I trust that I'm not the only one that went through that. But, you know, there was that time and, and that point in time when, when you looked over at that someone and all of a sudden you realized, I'm, I'm living with this person and I don't really even know them. And, and, and kind of the marriage kind of reboots and starts all over in a different, in a different way. So, depending on the way, depending on our way with our words, listening only to defend, using accusation to get your spouse to change, grumbling and complaining about their weaknesses, they all signal that our hearts have set themselves to worship someone and something other than God. We should all know that only God can change the heart. Nevertheless, we attempt to change our spouse the way we want them. The best way for a Christian to look at this is to, pr is, is to pray for them to change. That idea of praying for someone to change is, Lord, please guide your husband into picking up his socks instead of pick up your socks. Uh, in other words, prayer enters into the, the best way to look at change is to pray for change. And we all know that prayer is God's... Uh, totally and completely up to him and how he answers that prayer. So you may have to live with your husband's socks on the floor in the bedroom. It just may be one of those things. When Doris and I started dating, we were, we were pretty wrapped up in each other. Pretty much all we could see was what the other per person provided for us. We used to love to say these phrases. I love the way you make me feel. When I'm with you, you make me so happy. I want you all for my all. Want you all for myself. You know, I, those were, you know, and they're pretty touching stuff. But it all boils down to selfishness. Philippians two three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In real, in your relationships to one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. When you really think about it, when you put two different people together, something's got to give. So conflict is kind of inevitable. That's not, that's not going to be self. That's not the thing that's going to give because self-preservation. Uh, Doris and I have seen God's plan work in our lives and our daily interactions for 47 years. We have changed. We've changed a lot. We have not changed each other. God has changed us both. And that's also part of that two becomes one thing. You are who you are, who you are, you are becoming better than you were. The two of you together, separate, becomes better when they're together. Husbands, when your wife refuses to have sex with you because she's tired or stressed or upset with you, or gets angry with you because of how much you disappoint her, for whatever reason it may be, the degree of your love for God is about to be exposed. Wives, when your husband refuses to plan a date, buy a gift, or open up, or express concern for your soul because he's busy, or forgetful, or tired, or distracted, or forgets to pick up those socks, the degree of your love for God is about to come to light. And remember from the sessions on man and wife, we're not the same, male and female, and our ex expectations cannot be dependent on what we think and believe. We think 
and react differently. It could be regarding sex, money, a bowl of cereal. We think differently. And this can be a good thing when it comes to a relationship because it does bring different lights upon uh, different ideas and ways to look at things, which is always good. Some of the greatest tests of our loyalty to the Lord is when good things are withheld and without an apparently good reason. Not many of us see and readily admit to the fact that we love the world. We are good friends with the world. God exposes our love for the world by withholding parts of the world we feel most entitled to. Verse 2, and you shall, well, this is actually Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that God does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the, word, the mouth of God. Think about it. The Lord redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, not through their works, but through the blood of the Lamb. They were suffering in bondage, did not deserve to be free, yet the Lord ransomed them by his gracious provision of sacrifice. They were to be thankful and joyful, repentant, and faithful in response. Then the Lord brought them to the wilderness without food, without water, without fortification and protections against the Amalekites. And he did that to humble them, to expose them, to teach them. So what if the gift of God, if the gift of marriage is also a test? What if the joys and the delights of marriage are mixed with trials that God designs to humble and expose and teach us? What if what if we don't love the Lord near as much as we think? We love the world far more than we think, and the Lord wisely and skillfully uses marriage to prove it. While the Lord cares for us and serves our marriages, what if our marriages are also in service to God? Are you willing to joyfully accept and submit to that? To accept the fact that, as it says in Ephesians 5, our marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Is this how we represent Christ? Or do, you want to, or do we want to spend the next 40 years or so grumbling, complaining? Now, this part of the verse also illustrates a need for genuine, genuine on our knees prayer for our spouse and our relationship. As we've seen in the last few, last few weeks, a godly marriage is a unified marriage. Some of Doris and I's sweetest times have been after reconciling after a, after a disagreement. Once we've clashed and knocked heads, we realize that we had hurt one another un unnecessarily. We never, we never really fought or argued. We just had disagreements, right? A husband and wife. How we handled conflict to a large degree shows our children how to handle, handle conflict. Not just conflict, but all conflict, if you think about it. How we as parents handle our conflicts has a direct relationship to how our children handle conflicts. It helps them in the real world handle conflicts also. It demonstrates relationship conflict resolution to the most important people we know 
and that's our kids. What do you desire that they think of you and of Christ during those times? Verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The honest answer for most of it is, no, I do not uh, know that. Many of us try to straddle God and the world at the same time. Yet the cost of our love for the world and all the sinful communication that comes from our love of the world, that's enmity with God. Who here wants to be an enemy of God? I don't. If you made yourself an enemy of God through your friendship with the world, do you even know it? Well, honestly, let's examine that. What moves you to fight with your spouse? What angers you? In what moments do you pout? When do you avoid your spouse? When do you accuse them, criticize them, or try to manipulate them? When do you punish them? You can do that with a silent treatment, harsh words. Those are clues to the areas of life where you love the world more than your spouse and your love of the world more than God. And our Lord does not leave us to it, praise God. He cares and intervenes. In verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made us that has made dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God the Father redeemed us through Jesus Christ, and he united us to Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Our spirits are now his. He created us through Christ and now has recreated us in Christ so that he is jealous for us, for what rightfully belongs to him. Our pride resents and resists the truth that we belong to God. In fact, when James said, God opposes the proud, he's pointing out the real root of our communication trouble. That problem is pride. Why do we fight with one another? Pride. Why do we love our way more than God, more than our mates? Pride. Why are we so easily offended? Why are so we, aren't we so rude about things? Refuse to be patient or forgive or serve with joy or move toward our mates with kind words when things are hard? Why do we do those things? Pride. We do not have communication problems. We have pride problems, which makes fruitful, edifying communication an impossible always elusive fantasy. And simply learning better communication skills will not make it better, but worse. It's kind of like giving a kid a flamethrower to melt marshmallows, you know? Um, as John's used the illustration before about lawyers, not harping too much on lawyers, and not necessarily in a bad way, think about a lawyer in a courtroom, how they skillfully use their words to spin the facts and, and in their favor even better. Now in these times, politicians, how they spin the truth, spin the truth into a lie. But we're, for, we're thinking more about lawyers than you know, trying to win the conflict. And winning the conflict by how we have been, how about we, hmm, let me get some water here. My tongue's starting to twist. Winning a conflict by how well we've been trained is not the answer. I will win because I can win does not glorify God. It only points to our pride and selfishness in winning at all costs without desiring to hear the thoughts and desires of our spouse and considering what God's will is. So the idea of 
trying to win the conflict, that's not good. We need to consider what God's will is. So the third thing I kind of want to bring up, if we go back again to verse 2 and we see where it says quarreling and fighting, we may see that anger may as reared its nasty head. Yelling, language, cussing, fighting, throwing, they all add fuel to the fire. Anger may exist at the beginning of a conflict or it may be ignited somewhere during the conflict. But even when it does, the conflict grows. The fire starts and fuel is added by our selfishness. We start putting one out on the fire with our accusations, yelling, cussing, throwing dishes, chairs, until we've got a raging fire. Then one of the parties comes up with a can of gas and throws it on the fire. That comment that pushes the right button, they come up with that can of gasoline and they throw it on the fire and vroom, there it goes. The fire was raging out of control and people get burned. The conflict may have been over at that point because of that explosion of fire, but it's not finished and it may not be for a time. So anger distorts reality. Does anybody have an idea? How, how does anger distort reality? Anybody? Think about it. How does anger distort reality? What? We've all been angry to the point where how does it distort reality? Very good. It, it blinds you to being objective. It distorts reality. You get so angry that common sense no longer makes sense. That makes sense. Anger breeds anger. How does anger bring it, breed anger? Right. What else? Anything else? How does anger breed more anger? Right. You could, because you're angry, you're up in the ante, and the other person's up in the ante, so that becomes the anger keeps escalating because everybody keeps up in the ante. Ooh. Ooh. Oh. Yeah, isn't that tough? Yeah. Okay, anger separates us from God. How does anger, anger separate us from God? Puts you in control instead of God. Ooh. Ooh. Anger moves us to do things we don't normally do. Is that a true statement? Think about it. Any, anybody ever been there? I know in my case, it would probably, I would probably say something that I would regret, that I never would have said in, an, in a context that, that wasn't anger. So we need to put the, the, the fire out early in a conflict if anger raises its head. Perhaps take a step away from the anger from the discussion, 
kind of spread the embers out and kind of let the living water kind of flow over those embers? If conflict is getting too heated, stop, take it before the Lord and seek his wisdom. Come back later with cooler, when cooler heads prevail. Conflict is part of life. How we handle conflict in marriage help us determine how that relationship moves forward. Let our conflicts be as discussions which are fruitful in determining our future as husband and wife and as a family. So let's move on to, on your outlines, the help and hope for edifying communication. So not only does James show us, let me keep track on them. So not only does James show us the root of our trouble, he just shows us the root of our help and our hope, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In marriage, we must often ask ourselves, do I want to win or do I want grace from God? In God's courtroom, do I want to win the argument with my spouse or receive favor from the judge? Or just as importantly, do I want a courtroom in my home and an adversarial relationship with my spouse? I would think most of us would kind of say, no, I don't want that. James shows us the way in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Rather than submitting to the passions of our flesh, submit to God. In other words, seek his kingdom first and his righteousness. Draw near to God in feeding upon his word and responding in prayer. Give up your fantasy for marriage and receive his design in, in, in his design for your marriage. Remember, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We cannot receive, uh, serve God in money. We cannot serve the world and the kingdom of heaven. We cannot worship and follow Jesus while also worshiping the creation and following our passions. This is why James calls us to repent and commit ourselves to one master, one mission. In verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Most of our mourning and weeping in marriage comes from love of the wrong things. So James teaches us to mourn and weep the right things, namely our selfish desires, our spiritual adultery, our pride, to be humble before the Lord, trusting he will exalt us at the proper time. So much of our fighting and quarreling in marriage comes down to jockeying for position, clawing for the top, premature lifting ourselves up. Here we're given the solution. Receive grace from God in Christ. Be humble. Grieve personal submit, sin. Submit to God and wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And such a posture changes the way we talk and listen in, in marriage. It changes how we relate. And I love that idea of a posture of how we present ourselves to our mate. Back to the bread man. My precious wife and I had a discussion after the conflict where I had to, had to admit I was not putting God, her, and our family first. I thought I was. I thought I was but I was blinded by ambition and a desire to provide for the family, which that's not necessarily a bad thing. It was a priority thing. I was making a lot of money and it felt good. We had a discussion. I realized that something had to change 
And if the company that I work for didn't help, I would have to do it on my own by the grace of God. So through the years studying and by the grace of God, there's a few things I'd kind of like to share about conflict. First, don't be closed-minded. There's only one Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit. As a house divided cannot stand. As we said earlier, a man and a woman are, a man and a woman are different. Be open to that fact, but you were joined to become one. Second, be selfless. Proverbs 18.1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. The two of you were meant to be one. Be selfless towards each other. John's already talked about this in several sessions. Oneness takes time and patience. Third, be forgiving. Huge in my book. Ephesians 4.32. I guess that's because Doris, Doris has learned that well, to be forgiving. Um, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Marital conflict is the perfect breeding, breeding ground for finding fault. No one knows you better than your spouse, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Be forgiving so that you might be forgiven. Sometimes we think, oh, he or she is such a saint. You know, if you really want to know what a person's like, just ask their wife or ask their husband. You know, they live with them all the time. You know, we may appear to be saints to each other, but trust me, <laughs> just, well, don't ask my wife. Let's just leave it there. Uh, so anyway, fourth, be loving. First John 3.18. My children, let us not love in word or in, in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love is never more evident than we show, than shown after a conflict. As I said earlier, some of the sweetest times I've had with my wife were after a heated discussion. Fifth, be wise. Proverbs 20, 24, 3. Through wisdom, a house is built. True wisdom is application of knowledge from the word of God. When husbands and wives seek God's wisdom in a conflict, there's hope for restoration. Be wise what you say to one another. And sometimes it's knowing when to shut up. That simple. Sixth, be gentle. Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness be known before all men. Harsh words and attitudes build up resentment on both sides. Gentleness in word and posture, again that posture and that gentle posture towards each other, makes everybody feel safe. Gentleness, gentleness by both parties is great. But gentleness by one party may disarm the anger and resentment of the other. I had a, an instance happen to me. I used to be, I've had a lot of jobs, so I got, I got lots of stories. One of those jobs was I was the um, facility manager for Oklahoma Goodwill Industries in Oklahoma City. I had 150 people with disabilities that worked for me. One of those men was a about six foot four, weighed about 250 pounds. Um, this was in the uh, mid-90s. And uh, group home, or the uh, institutions had just been demanded all over. So uh, people with disabilities, uh, mentally retarded, uh, I know that's not a PC word, but anyway, uh, people with mental disabilities and blind and deaf, everything were spread out throughout the community in different homes in Oklahoma City. 
Uh, one of the men at Goodwill that worked for me was a guy named George. He was 6'4", weighed 220, 230, 240 pounds. Um, he had a mental disability. Uh, he had a real aversion to supervisors because in that institution he'd just come from, supervisors abused him. Well, George got upset one day. He had a box knife, open box knife in his hand, and he was ranting and raving and swinging that open box knife around. I've got other people in the room, so you have to address the problem. So to address the problem, I simply walked up to him, held my hands to my side, and started speaking very softly and gently. And I kept speaking as he ran in and raved with that open box knife swinging. I kept talking slowly and gently. And with, within four or five minutes, George came down. And after that time, we had a fantastic relationship. But the idea of gentleness, one person in the relationship can use gentleness sometimes to diffuse the situation, or diffuse the anger of the other one. Seventh, be honest, Proverbs 24, 26. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Once a lie is given, it makes it harder to reconcile because trust is broken. Yes, sometimes being honest can escalate a conflict and it can hurt, but lying only makes it worse. This kind of plays back to forgiveness. Show respect and honor them by listening. Eighth, be transparent, Hebrews 4.13. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give account. This goes with the being honest. Be careful of hidden agendas. Like lying, they foster distrust. Being transparent demonstrates a godly character because you know you have nothing to hide. One of the bad things about trust is once it's violated, it's really difficult to regain in any relationship, be it your children, be it your spouse, be it friends, whatever. Ninth, whatever the conflict, Get it over with, Ephesians 25, 26. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. The longer the issue is prolonged, the more we work up a lather or anger, as we discussed earlier, and make ourselves up to be the victim. Don't give Satan a foothold. It stresses us, and going to bed that way only makes things worse. I'm not going to say that there may not be a need for a break and calm down, a breath, and take a breath and calm down, but don't prolong the conflict. Whereas another option, my beautiful wife said, consider if the matter should be simply covered by grace, forgiven and let go, give it over to God before going to bed. Tenth, talk to your spouse. Don't go outside the marriage unless it becomes necessary. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, scripture tells us to go to the offensive individual first, attempt to reconcile, and if that doesn't work, seek counsel within the church. Make sure you're going for moderation. Make sure in going to moderation, that's a, it's a decision between you both. Be careful of sharing your problems with others without permission. It goes back to that breach of trust thing with your spouse. Don't be talking to someone about your problems other than your spouse unless you and your spouse agree that we need to go talk to somebody because we're having a problem. And then there's one. Scripture, this is something um, I think I've kind of learned over the last 67, 68 years. Proverbs 15:1. a soft answer turns away wrath. Keep the discussion civil. 
yelling and screaming only vilifies yourself, which takes us back to pride and selfishness. It grieves our children, it scares them, it teaches them it's an acceptable way to behave. Make it a conscious decision before marriage not to scream and yell during a conflict. A smile and gentle words turn away wrath. Doris and I made that decision uh, among a couple others before we were married, that our relationship would be not one of yelling and screaming, that we approached conflict in a mature way. So, someone will need to be Someone will need to be the one who determines who will go to war when a discussion is necessary. So give consideration to the situation is whether the toilet paper that goes over the roll or under the roll, is that, really, is that something we really know to go, go to war with for God? You know. So do we love, love, do we love God and our spouses? Well, I say yes, probably. You know, Lord, help us to love more, to learn to love with our words. So do we love the world too much? Probably. So we need to say, oh Lord, help us to love it less, to learn to mourn and to weep our love for it, to learn to seek first the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness. Are there any questions, comments? How about that? Took us up to time. Okay, well, let's dismiss in a word of prayer then. Gracious Father, as we prayed earlier, Lord, we pray that anything not of your will, Lord, to be snatched from our minds and our hearts, and Lord, only that which is left is the grace of God in our hearts. Father, thank you for those that have come out this morning, Lord. Lord, we just lift them up, and we pray for grace upon their lives, Father. Thank you for this day, Lord. We lift up uh, the service this morning, Lord. We pray for the Lord's Supper, Lord, that we may take it in all open mind and open heart. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.